This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm Amelia Searson. We live in a global age where cultures, religions, beliefs and identities cross and converge. And yet, we have never been more divided, giving rise to people, groups and ideas that are extremely intolerant of difference. Political extremism is on the rise in countries around the world, perhaps most noticeably in the US. But what defines political extremism and what's behind its increase? To discuss this topic with me today is Dr. Ben Rich and Michael Vietesca. Ben and Michael are researchers with Curtin School of Media, Culture, Creative Arts and Social Inquiry with expertise in international relations and the far right. Welcome, Ben and Michael. Ben, this is your second time on the podcast. Thanks so much for returning and sharing more of your expertise. No worries. So just to get us started, Ben, can you explain to me the difference between someone just having radical political views and being a political extremist? Um, well, I think the the real the key term there is the difference between uh, someone with radical political views and someone willing to engage in um, violent extremism, because this is what we um, really are quite focused on these days. Um, having radical political views uh, in some circles is obviously a very kind of a bad connotation, but for many, you know, having radical political views is actually quite a positive thing. If we think back, for instance, to the American Civil War, uh, anti-slave abolitionists were considered radical for their time, and many pursued that agenda, you know, through both uh, violent and non-violent means. Um, What we think about, though, when we talk about uh, sort of extremism in this context today, though, are people who are essentially willing to forego the norms of what we think of as acceptable engagement in political activities. So maybe you have a agenda, a progressive agenda or a conservative agenda that is considered, you know, outside of the norms, but you are willing to pursue that through uh, sort of means that society agrees upon are acceptable. So a good example of this is the uh, Islamic group in Australia, and it's actually uh, sort of it's across the West, and it's his book, Taria. Now, his book, Taria, are definitely what we would consider as political radicals. They are a group with the express um, objective of establishing a caliphate. You know, they want to uh, basically get us living under a religious theocracy. However, their activities have by and large been constrained to uh, methods of persuasion. So things like um, you know, going out and handing out pamphlets, political organization, um, you know, reading groups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So while they are, you know, engaged in uh, and pursuing goals that are generally considered as anathema to a liberal democracy, um, they are not engaging in violent means of achieving that. You would then compare that to a political extremist group with a similar goal like the Islamic State, um, who has quite similar goals to his book, but is more than willing to use violence to achieve those goals. So that's where we really differentiate between a radical and a violent extremist. Right. So violence is really the thing that underpins what determines a political extremist, right? And Michael, can you explain to me, because I'm sure this is going to be coming up within our conversation, uh, the difference between left and right wing views? And maybe if you had like a global example of a, of a group who leans either way, if you could share that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think if you boil down the, you know, the conventional left right uh, divide to its basic kind of elements, I would say the difference is philosophical in nature, where broadly, and I'm, I'm generalizing to some extent here, but broadly, we would say that the political left um, has a kind of has its roots in what we would call determinism, 
and the political right has some roots in what we would call uh, a free will or individual agency kind of centric approach to human behavior. Did you want me to elaborate on those a little bit? Yeah, yeah, if you, cool. if you wouldn't mind. So for determinists, the idea basically, and sorry to get very philosophical and very abstract, um, is that free will isn't real, it doesn't exist. Um, you are born a blank slate um, through childhood and adolescence, you suck in information about the world around you um, and the sort of people and the norms and the customs of the, that world. And based on that information, you're kind of trapped or I guess limited um, in terms of your ability to make certain decisions. So for example, uh, a child growing up on a farm in and we're going to use the US example because it's topical, uh, in rural Alabama, probably doesn't have very much of a drive to study for the Harvard entrance exam, right? Um, they weren't necessarily born into a setting where expectations about the importance of attending an Ivy League school were drilled into them from an early age. Um, their expectations about their future well-being probably aren't going to be tied to whether or not they graduate, come some lot up, again, from like a, one of those Ivy League universities. Um, and then also by virtue of the wealth of their family, the education they received growing up might not be adequate to prepare them for that pathway. So if we compare that to a kid raised in an affluent part of Chicago, who's raised around certain markers of wealth, taught to idolize intellectualism, um, and as a result, whose self-worth and kind of prospects for the future are tied to the idea of graduating from Harvard. While both kids might have the potential, you know, theoretically, to go to Harvard and graduate, only one is really born into the circumstances where pursuing it is both taught to be desirable um, and actually materially achievable. Um, the way that this position, this determinist position manifests in policy is kind of like a straightforward uh, follow on from here. So determinists basically look for instances in the world where people are inhibited or occluded uh, as a result of the circumstances they're born into uh, from pursuing certain opportunities or standards of living. Um, and then finding ways to alleviate those conditions. So this is where we get your socialism, your communism, and all these either uh, kind of ideologies from. They all stem from this, I guess, generalized desire to provide as many people as possible with the material circumstances to achieve their full potential, to you know, sort it out. Um, so this, uh, this is where we get the term progressive from, this idea that um, the human experience is something that can be improved upon and changed. Now, conversely, so that's, that's determinism on the left. Uh, conversely, the right generally emphasize a perspective grounded on assumptions about individual agency and the importance and the sanctity of your individual agency and your kind of um, free will. Everyone is a free agent um, and we should really orient our societies towards enabling types of behaviors and attitudes that seem to result in success or successful individuals. Um, if we adopt this perspective, we'd look around us at the things that seem to be working. We're sitting in a nice air-conditioned studio. We've got iPhones or smartphones strapped to our thighs. Um, we've got all this nice stuff. It's all good. So how can we preserve or further sort of uh, empower the actors or the systems that make these things possible, right? If my car being cheap and effective is the result of an unregulated or slightly less regulated than usual market, then hey, let's deregulate the market even more. Um, if the company that made that car was founded by an entrepreneur, let's support entrepreneurs and so on and so on and so on. From this perspective, uh, the solution to emerging problems in society generally involves looking backwards uh, rather than forwards. After all, it was society changing that created many of the problems that we're gonna be talking about today in the first place, right? So if 
change has created the problems. We look, we look to the past and we look for things about society that were different in the past that we can revert back to to alleviate some of these social pressures. Um, so particularly when we're talking about the far right, um, the analysis becomes, you know, what has changed in the last 50 or 100 years that might have contributed to the issues we're dealing with now and how can we revert back to that mode of being. Um, now, I'm confident, and Ben, you're welcome to correct me on this, that pretty much any major social or economic dispute between the left and the right can be boiled down to this perspective. But I'll give you like a little bit of a clear example of kind of how this manifests in political dispute, right? Um, criminal justice is a really good example. So the left determinists would view criminals primarily as victims of circumstance, um, people born into social and economic circumstances that make a pathway towards some kind of criminal act, almost an inevitability, right? That victims of circumstance again. The right, you know, advocates of free will, would view criminals as fundamentally evil or lazy and as individuals who, despite knowing all the risks, willingly chose to break the law. The left's response would therefore be what is termed uh, generally rehabilitative justice or restorative justice, investing time and money into understanding the circumstances that led to the criminal act and providing the sort of support to the individual to you know, set them back on track and also to prevent other people from falling down that same line. Um, conversely, the rights response um, falls generally, not all the time, but generally under what we would call punitive justice. You, sorry not to point at you, you as an individual committed the crime, therefore you as an individual ought to be punished. Um, and this is where we get you know, some of the sort of prison systems we've seen dominating the US and Australia. Um, yeah, so determinist first, uh, free will, very philosophical, but I think that anything, any other explanation, whether we talk about a communal versus an individual perspective, um, is going to stem from that philosophical difference. Michael, you mentioned education. I think that is a really, really interesting concept, especially since uh, it's often used in history. Mm. You know, if you look at Soviet Russia, it was used as a tool to suppress opposition and to control or indoctrinate people, really. Um, do you think that is like education is still a measure that's being used to facilitate these sorts of um, extremist views? Uh, yes, in the sense that um, education standards in the like in in the West specifically have declined over the last two decades in Australia quite sharply. So, in the sense that um, children are being imbued with less critical thinking skills, certainly there is a <laughs> a pathway towards the option of more radical viewpoints from that perspective, yeah. I remember watching a documentary about um, neo-Nazis in America mm -hmm. and they were saying that the Holocaust was actually like a vacation spot mm -hmm. and there were swimming pools and, you know, it yeah. was a really, really incredible experience and it's just sort of, where did you read that, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, very classic. Um, well, so, no, yeah, so, yeah. so, well, a really good example of this we can see actually in modern Germany um, and the way in which education can either facilitate or stymie um, political extremism. So one of the things that's really interesting about looking at modern Germany is you have the unification between the East and the West. It happens after the end of the Cold War. And in the West, under the Western Allies occupation, there was what was termed as the denazification program. So this was a national effort imposed on the German people by the Allies as they were occupied. Ignoring some of the more soft stuff they did with, you know, for instance, you know, uh, uh, getting uh, German rocket scientists. Uh, we were very much affiliated with the Nazi party and putting guys in the, the Bundeswehr who perhaps were um, a bit sus. But there was a broader effort to essentially 
make the population of Germany confront the horrors that it had inflicted on uh, its own uh, minority populations, Jews, gypsies, um, probably not the gays at the time, LGBT at the time, but um, uh, certainly uh, ethnic and religious minorities. Um, and what this meant was that uh, the appeal of uh, neo-Nazism and uh, white supremacy has always, since the end of Cold War in the German, in the west of Germany, um, not had a great deal of traction, not had a great deal of resurgence. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, however, you had Eastern Germany. And the way in which uh, the Eastern Germans under the occupation by the Soviets were forced to deal with the, the sort of the horrors of the Holocaust was essentially they were told they weren't responsible. They said they were essentially led astray and that the society itself didn't hold any real uh, culpability for that. Essentially telling the society, you know, you get a kind of free pass on this, it wasn't your fault. And what we've seen interestingly enough with uh, the end of the, the Cold War um, and the reunification of Germany is that Territories in the East have had a much greater problem with neo-Nazis and white nationalists coming out of those areas than territories in the West with these very two different education systems and how they confronted that national history. Now, certainly we can talk about that in the case of Australia uh, and our own sort of sordid past with um, Indigenous minorities and how we treated them and, and just a kind of uh, some of the white nationalist kind of a white supremacist narratives that we see today that we are still contending with. I'd like to hear both of your opinions on this because obviously it's extremely, extremely topical. Uh, in terms of the, the recent riots in Washington, some people are calling them an act of domestic terrorism. Would you agree with this definition? And yeah, what are your general thoughts on what's currently happening in the capital? Well, I think um, this comes back to something that uh, we confront uh, in our own unit on terrorism, if anyone's interested. Uh, it's in second semester of uh, every year, um, terrorism insurgency. You can go look it up if you have an elective open. Um, terrorism itself as a topic is, uh, as a concept, is what we term in the field an essentially contested one. It's a topic, it's, it's a concept that uh, it's very hard to get a clear working definition of. Um, and indeed, if there are entire journal articles out there that look at the hundreds of definitions of law enforcement agencies, different states, uh, academics, uh, think tanks of how they define terrorism. However, I think in the case of uh, we, we, when we see that when we talk about the recent uh, riot or the, the, the incident at the Capitol, that's probably the best way to, to call it, um, perhaps we have to break it down into component parts. I think on the one hand, there was a kind of spontaneous, uh, you know, kind of uh, outbreak of violence. And that is something that we would probably generally attribute to something more along the lines of a riot. There wasn't a really, for, for, I think for many people who were engaging in that, it perhaps wasn't really a premeditated thing. It was a, something that happened on the spot. People were fired up. They got in. You know, you saw this with, you know, some of the reports on the ground of people kind of, they broke into the Capitol and then they were just kind of milling about, not really knowing what to do. It's Take sort of like the, yeah, <laughs> so the, the dog that catches, you know, its own tail. Like, what do I do with mm. this? However, the other thing we know is that there were definitely people who were planning this premeditatively online. Um, there were people who were planning to engage in acts of political violence. 
um, who had, you know, sketched out, you know, plans perhaps to kidnap or even execute congressmen and women um, with the express uh, intention of generating fear and propaganda. Now, that is pretty much a textbook case of terrorism. It's something that, um, you know, I think a lot of people aren't comfortable with because perhaps um, our familiarity with terrorism over the last 20 years has been one associated with racial characteristics. And so when we confront it being done by a bunch of middle and lower class people of um, Caucasian backgrounds, it doesn't feel right. However, I think if we are adhering to consistent applications of the concept, it's very difficult to make the argument that there weren't people who were either engaging in terrorism on that day or intending to engage in premeditated acts of terrorism. Mm. And they were just making those posts publicly on Mm. like Facebook or... Yeah. And there are also people that were photographed in the actual um, building with zip cuffs or zip ties and like hostage taking sort of kits. So yeah, between the two. Um, I think another important thing when we talk, like kind of take, take a step back and look at how terrorism is used kind of by states because of, you know, the last 20 or so years of uh, conflicts that we've kind of experienced. We've seen the spread of the surveillance state and all of this has kind of been justified under the, the umbrella of protecting us from terrorism. Now, there are two problems with this. One is that liberal, uh, or Dem uh, sorry, uh, Democrat or Republican, again, we're going to focus on the US here, um, using terrorism or the threat of terrorism to expand and cramp down on civil rights is, is a bipartisan thing. So, you know, I like to use the example that uh, Obama loved as he is, uh, punished more whistleblowers than all of his predecessors combined, right? So the, the state as this kind of entity that has a monopoly on violence is always going to look for opportunities to control, monitor, um, the population. It, it, it kind of makes sense from the perspective of the state, but it's there's a fine balance to be kind of struck there. So on the one hand, there's you know the issue associated with expanding or creating new legislation to deal with the people that storm the capital as terrorists that are, is kind of problematic. On the other hand, and this is something we're going to probably get to again later, is that historically when you treat social problems um, as policing issues, as terror, you know uh, certain Muslim communities in Australia have experienced, right? Um, in the last kind of decade or two, it, it often has a counterproductive effect where if you identify a particular community and you send men with guns once or twice a year to, um, you know, check on them and arrest them and things like that, and that, that uh, group of people's perspective is that the state is illegitimate and the state is out to get them, you tend to confirm that perspective, right? And you tend to actually, in some cases, radicalize people further, incite more violence. So from the perspective of the, the right in the U.S., they're being called terrorists. In many cases, like if we look at the QAnoners, they believe that the US government is controlled by a shadowy cabal of, I think, Jewish elites that engage in pedophilia and child sex trafficking. If all of a sudden that state now starts coming for them, kicking down doors, arresting people under the uh, sort of framework of a threat of terror, that can may very well likely have the opposite effect. So we'll, we'll probably get to this a little bit later, but there's a, a problem with using this kind of hard terrorist rhetoric to, to deal with a problem when in fact over, overwhelmingly it seems to be more of a social problem. A really good, um, another very topical example of this outside of the United States about the, the problem of using, classifying politically an organization as a terrorist one is, um, can actually be found in Yemen. So um, Mike Pompeo, the rather uh, morally repulsive 
uh, current uh, Secretary of State under Trump on his way out has been doing as much damage as possible to basically sabotage um, the Biden administration's sort of efficacy in um, its foreign policy. And one of the things that he has done is uh, classify the uh, Houthi rebels in Yemen as a terrorist organization. Now, we think, why does this matter? This is a conflict that's yonks away. It's, you know, in the backwater of the Middle East. Uh, Why should we care about it? Well, the problem is, is that when you politically classify an organization, when the State Department designates an organization as a terrorist organization, a bunch of legal restrictions come into play um, in terms of things like how can you engage, what what are actual ways you can engage with this kind of entity? Um, You know, how can you open dialogue, et cetera, et cetera. Etc. It makes it much more difficult to engage with that. Now, what we've seen is that at the same time that this happened, the Saudis, um, who have been fighting a bloody war um, inside that country for the last five years, it's been designated by numerous observers, including the UN, I believe, as the worst humanitarian crisis of our time, um, are finally getting the hint that this is not a sustainable war and that they need to find a way out. Well, the only way you find ways out of conflicts like that is by engaging and finding peace dialogues um, and um, coming to some kind of arrangement with it. Now, one of the major actors, the dominant actor that the Saudis and the South Yemeni government are going to have to deal with are the Houthis, because regardless of whether you like them or not, they are in a rather um, uh, intractable position in the country's north. They are not going to be defeated militarily. So there has to be a dialogue. There has to be peace negotiations. Um, there has to be a move towards conflict resolution with them that uh, that accepts the reality of who they are. So by designating them a terrorist organization, Pompeo has essentially thrown a big spanner in this process because how can you engage with an organization that is a terrorist? It's by classifying them as a terrorist, you're essentially saying they are, um, you know, just it's impossible to talk to them. They can't be dealt with like a legitimate political actor. Mm. Um, and this will likely have significant significant impacts in that peace process down the line, which is already very fraught from the outset. And Michael, there's a documentary filmmaker who I'm obsessed with, Louis Theroux. I don't know if you've, you've probably heard. Yes, he's incredible. <laughs> um, he has made many documentaries interviewing you know, neo-Nazis, just many, many different political extremists. And last year he made a comment, I think he was being interviewed by The Guardian, and he said that far-right groups are becoming more insidious than ridiculous, and that was sort of frightening him. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said for the rise of the far-right and the kind of growing prevalence of it. I think it was either, no, it's 2021 now, wow, two years ago, either two or three years ago now, um, Blair Cottrell was on Sky News. This is a guy who has spoken about, um, publicly stated that I think all schools in Australia should have a framed photo of Adolf Hitler in every classroom um, and every and Mein Kampf should be a mandatory reading. This is a guy who uh, says that the best way, or has, has said that the best way to control a woman is to give her a little bit of a slap every now and again. And this, this is someone who's been given, uh, a neo-Nazi who's been given prime airtime, right? So I, I would say 10 years ago, something like that would be unimaginable. I think Louis' comment would would in part be influenced by the sudden prevalence of figures like this in the kind of mainstream political discourse. Now, there are innumerable interconnected, very, very complex reasons for why the kind of right has risen in public discourse. I think one central one is that, and we kind of will be going back to some of the things we mentioned earlier, is that a lot of the narratives um, that the right kind of espouses 
are simple. Um, when times are tough and currently in COVID times, things certainly seem very, very uncertain. The future is uncertain. Simple narratives are a lot more palatable and easy to digest than complex narratives. Um, very, very simple and stereotypical example. If a neighborhood primarily, primarily inhabited by one particular ethnic minority has a higher crime rate than neighboring white neighborhoods, it's incredibly easy to attribute that crime rate to the culture or ethnicity of the population there, right? Uh, when in reality, the crime rate could be the result of all sorts of factors in intergenerational wealth, systemic racism, redlining, this abstract, dense, boring historical stuff that requires hundreds of hours of reading, um, really boring economics textbooks, uh, uh, boring historical stuff. It, it, it can be a nightmare to actually explain the origins of certain social problems, where in reality, you know, going back to what I was saying before about social change, uh, historically this has been a wide area. Uh, we've seen a preponderance of immigrants and now things are bad. Why? It's because of the immigrants, right? These very, very simple narratives are very, very palatable. So that's one problem. The second problem, um, we've already spoken briefly about education. So if we look at sort of declining standards in primary and secondary education, not only abroad, but like focusing on Australia, specifically within Australia, that makes it very, very difficult for people entering adulthood to have the necessary skills to actually critically analyze the information that they are sort of presented with. And that ties into a third major factor, which I'm sure was going to be raised at some point as well, which is social media and the sort of algorithmic journalism whereby things that generate clicks, things that generate time spent on screen are going to be uh, increasingly kind of uh, served to you. Um, so simple narratives that are shocking and help explain and alleviate uncertainty, a lack of education leading to an ability, inability to kind of a less of an ability to critically analyze information. And then simple narratives being, you know, drawing your attention um, and being fed to you over and over and over again kind of leads to the situation that we're at now. And also, Im Im importantly, also, like the, the narratives on the right have one advantage in particular over the narratives on the left, which is that they draw on a past that is imagined that is, you know, we remember a time when things were not this way, when we, you know, like, even if it's imagined, like there was a time that we can return to. And you see this with the, the messaging of someone like Trump, you know, what was his message? Make America great again. You see this with, uh, you know, figures like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, Roberto Duterte in the Philippines, they all have some kind of variant of this message of restorative, um, you know, getting back to the roots of society and particularly in a, in a real kind of um, historical moment that we're in with COVID where there's so much uncertainty, you know, in terms of economics, you know, am I going to have my job next year in terms of, you know, like health, um, in terms of all the transformations that are going on that are being used by this crisis by you know companies things like automation um, the, the nature of society the fabric of society itself is in this kind of state of flux and people find that very uh, dislocative you know sort of in a psychological sense and so it is natural for people to want to claw on to and hold on to something that seems more real and tangible and known in that context, yes, certainly you can come to someone with a sort of a left wing or a Marxist, you know, sort of analysis and say, you know, this is why this is happening. But as Michael points out, you know, the ability to like really um, engage with and internalize those narratives requires a great degree in many cases of sort of proactive learning on the part of the individual. Whereas in the case of the narratives put forward by the right, oftentimes these things are 
things that can be easily slotted into. I would also just add that you know if we look at the history of you know far right groups in places like Australia and America, this is a, a learned behaviour. The idea of essentially putting all of the blame for society's ills on external ethnicities. You know, in Australia, obviously, before we had um, the, the the perception of the uh, of Muslim communities as a threat, it was Asian communities. And before that, it was Mediterranean communities. So this is something that happens in waves. It's in the focus of the particular groups changes as, you know, certain groups come and are more normalized in the public kind of consciousness. But the same sort of reflexive behavior comes over and over again. Mm. <clears throat> Would you say that it's sort of a form of like fear-mongering or? That's definitely integral part to any sort of political extremism. Um, one of the main kind of factors driving radicalization to the point of violence is the unconscious process whereby the group of radicals comes to sort of separate themselves morally or disengage morally from the society that they're a part of, right? So you have a group of people, um, whatever their ideological affiliation is, let's say they have a particular political grievance, they try handing out flyers, they try protesting, they don't get anywhere. And they're really, really pissed off about their cause, they don't get anywhere. Um, they get into a little bit of a punch up with the police, something like that. They start to morally over time come to view the state and the you know all the institutions and all the people that support that state as actually not just different, not just, you know, having different opinions, but as morally either nothing or even like lesser than, right? So this isn't something that is exclusive to the right. We see it, we saw it in the, you know, Soviet Union with the kind of um, hatred, for, emergence of hatred for the bourgeoisie. There's in-group and an out-group. Um, this is something that's integral to any kind of political extremism and fear and uncertainty are really, really fertile grounds for people to latch onto these kinds of narratives, right? Um, it, it almost happens naturally in some senses where these broader social economic forces at play create uncertainty and then certain figures either knowingly or unknowingly, I'm still on the fence about that. I'm optimistic that it's unknowingly and these are just unfortunately uh, skilled individuals, I guess, but obviously there's a lot of cynicism out there as well. Um, they, they seize on this fear and uncertainty and they, they give it a shape and a direction. So, you know, very, very clear example with, uh, again, the Make, a, uh, Make America Great narrative. The reason that you people in the south of America are so um, poorly off is because of the immigrants coming and taking your jobs. The solution that, to that is going to be a build a border, yada, yada, yada. It, it, it's a very kind of, every, every way you look, again, across time and space, whether we're talking about right-wing political groups or left-wing political groups, it's almost a cyclical kind of process. So with what's going on in Washington, D.C., do you think extremist groups are only going to become more active post-Trump, I suppose? I think, I mean, I think the the, the impact of the Capitol um, uh, storming uh, is, you know, it's going to be felt for many years to come as a, as a symbol of propaganda as what can be achieved. And I think... What we're seeing now with this historical deployment, I mean, we, as far as I'm aware, even during the Civil War, we never had a deployment of this scale um, to the capital. So obviously the government is taking it very seriously. Um, but I think that as we move forward, um, we will probably see more fragmentation in American society. I just don't see... 
um, the uh, the the uh, sort of coming together right now of that population. I think it's far too fractured, uh, and I think that the sort of the panacea to those divisions is not um, immediately evident, and is going to take years, if not decades, of work to start to really um, reconcile. And I think in the interim, what we will see is uh, a continual growth of. Um, terrorist groups, let's quite frankly call a spade for a spade, um, willing to engage in acts of performative symbolic violence against the state as an act of um, resistance. I'm not of the view, and I could be wrong, uh, but I'm not of the view that we are on the fringe of a new American civil war. I just don't think American society, as fragmented as it is, has the capacity to um, sustain or something like that at home. What I do think is we will see a significant uptick of political violence, particularly coming from the right over the years. I mean, there's, there will still be certainly um, manifestations of uh, left-wing violence, although much to a much smaller degree. Um, there will still be manifestations of Islamist political violence, but again, to a much smaller degree. But I think the unfortunate reality is that the, the right... Um, and particularly far-right extremism has very deep roots in American society in a way that is far more organic and has far more potential to grow to large scales than uh, the left or um, those um, subscribing to Islamist um, ideals. Um, and I think that breaking down this alternative narrative that um, a significant part of the American population lives in which has been there in some way shape or form you know for you know far prior to donald trump remember the united states has always been a a a, a an area in which conspiracy theories uh, run rampant in which things like evangelicalism and what we would consider here in australia as quite radical uh, religious movements that often pride themselves on their disconnect from reality and there's no uh, coincidence that you see a lot of these people who, for instance, adhere to the QAnon are also, you know, have come from highly religious backgrounds. You know, there are similar properties in sort of how you see the world and your ability to suspend, you know, the, the reliance on material um, observation. Um, breaking that down, I think, is going to be really the um, a defining part of, you know, our generation and figuring out ways to reestablish a sense of consistent civic nationalism, a consistent understanding of the American project and what it is to be American that can reach across the aisle. Um, that's going to come from both, you know, the elites, the political players, you know, the fact that we continually see, although there is some signs that this is starting to break down a little bit, um, you know, votes are almost always along partisan lines. Democrats vote one way, Republicans vote the other, and there's very little intersection. Um, and it's also going to have to come from the grassroots, you know, people getting out there and rebuilding these communities um, and frankly, like stepping away from, you know, the sort of the toxic cesspool that is the Internet and having that as a pri your primary uh, sort of sense of social identity. Because I think, unfortunately, I'm, a, I'm very much a techno pessimist when it comes to the Internet. I think it tends to bring out the worst in people. And I think that fundamentally it can be a useful tool, but it does not it does not. Um, like replace, you know, good old fashioned 
um, human interaction. So I think that's something that is going to have to be reckoned with. And um, the people who, you know, sort of really put forward this techno-optimist vision utopia, you know, back in the early 2000s and 2010s, I think their, their vision has really, um, you know, been proven quite the lie. And I just have one last question for you both. It's very simple, don't worry. What's the future of political extremism? I lied, it's not really that simple. (laughs) Um, We've kind of touched upon some of that. I think the the trend for the 21st century kicked off with um, religious extremism. Um, I say kicked off, it was very, very relevant in the Middle East, it was very, very relevant in Europe, wasn't particularly massively felt here or in the, the US aside from obviously 9-11, um, the the kind of fallout from that really, we have a unit on terrorism and insurgency as a result of that. But when you look at um, the sort of threat terrorism poses in Australia, historically, you're far, more, you're far more likely to be killed by a shark or a kangaroo than you are a terrorist, right? Statistically speaking. So the fallout from that has kind of driven the emergence of this discipline. I'm digressing slightly. Islamic extremism was never really I would say much of a threat here. The trend is going to be towards the right, whether that is the QAnon type conspiracy theorists, whether that is the incels and the men going their own way movement, these people who feel particularly victimized by a sort of very artificial uh, gender stratification that they've created in society. Um, That seems to be the trend for political extremism, just in the West. I'm not speaking for the rest of the world. So I'll sort of, I'll finish this with two points. so uh, there's a very famous um, uh, scholar of uh, political violence by the name of David Rappaport. And he proposed a model to account for um, what he termed as the waves of terrorism in the 20th century. And he essentially said there were four waves. Um, and he, what he was saying was this, he wasn't saying that all terrorism committed during these periods was this one type, but this was the dominant type of terrorism that was committed. So um, first wave was the, so what it was termed as the anarchist nihilist wave. This was the early 20th century. Um, this is when you have uh, sort of anarchist groups and stuff resisting the old imperial states, uh, particularly Russia. Obviously, there's the quite very famous assassination of Tsar Alexander um, by an anarchist. Um, you had... Uh, I think it was William McKinley in the United States was assassinated by um, a an anarchist, and a lot of terrorist attacks. Um, basically, individuals or, or groups who felt that the state overreached and that they were trying to throw off the shackles to create more local governance and less sort of tyrannical imposition. After that, you had what was termed as the anti-colonial wave. So this was the wave that manifested in many parts of the developing world um, as the empires of old kind of came ground to a halt. So um, some people would, for instance, classify some of the activities um, in the lead up to the Armenian genocide as these types of activities, you know, using terrorism against the Turks by Armenians who um, felt that they were essentially subjugated under the Ottoman Empire, which then um, used this as an excuse to engage in the Armenian genocide. Um, certainly by no means giving the Turks a free pass on this, just that they use these types of incidents as a means to engage in um, um, activities of uh, systemic um, massacring and um, forced displacement, etc. Uh, in other parts of the world, obviously, you had groups like Ergun in what was to become Israel. You know, uh, Zionist nationalists who were essentially targeting both the, um, the the Palestinians, but more importantly, the British to try and basically push them out of this. And similar groups in other parts of the Middle East, Africa. 
So that was the, uh, the anti-colonial wave. After that, you had what was termed as the new left. So this was the 1960s and 70s, groups like Barter Meinhof, um, the Japanese Red Army, groups that were motivated by Marxist ideation in some way, shape or form, trying to establish um, you know, left-wing governments, um, Marxist governments, Marxist-Leninist governments. Finally, you had um, sort of from 1979 onwards what was termed as the religious wave. So this was kicked off by the uh, attack I actually mentioned earlier, with the, the Grand Mosque siege, but groups like Hezbollah, uh, Al-Qaeda, and, um, you know, closer to today, ISIS, you know, groups motivated by religious ideology. Not just uh, Islamic, there are, you know, there were you know, plenty of like anti-abortionist terrorists and stuff in the United States. Um, I think what we are, and I, this is kind of what I've sort of assessed for a couple of years now, is we're starting to enter what I would term as the ideational wave. This is the wave that is based on identity and the defense of identity, whether it is a conservative identity that wants to make America great again, um, or whether it's identities based around race, um, uh, gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're going to see a growth of these types of things in the coming years as you know, uh, new kind of um, consensuses are reached, particularly through the internet. You know, Again, the internet allows you to have a set of extremist views that traditionally in the West, you know, if you had these views, you would probably be pretty isolated from society. It would be pretty difficult for you to find people. Now it's very easy for you to find people that have like-minded. You can talk, you can create a more sophisticated identity. Like for instance, if we look at the incel movement and people who use who have used terrorism um, justified through incel lens, uh, they are the incels are really interesting in the fact that they have a, actually quite a sophisticated ideology of the way sexual dynamics work and the way, you know, sort of certain um, members of society who are, quotes, genetically blessed, you know, are sort of granted all sorts of privileges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They've created this real quite consistent, um, albeit, you know, some of you, most people would probably say kind of like insane worldview, but it is one that comes out of a community that is able to talk about these things, debate these things, and it has reached a level of sophistication and accessibility that can pull more and more people into it. Um, so you have that. And the other thing you have that we haven't talked about at all is the use of um, extremists, political extremists and violent extremists by states as a form of warfare. Um, we've seen this kind of stoked, you know, in recent conflicts like in um, eastern Ukraine with the split between um, sort of eastern nationalists who kind of adhere to a what they would see as a Slavic worldview and western nationalists who, you know, adhere to a more western worldview um, with the uh, the Russian state in particular, you know, supporting these guys and really emphasizing them and telling them, you know, this is the right worldview, you know, to achieve their own national interests. So basically the Russians can um, achieve, you know, their objectives without necessarily having to directly fight a war. Um, I think that's going to be another big factor. And if you really want to read about this kind of stuff, and particularly in the context of the increasing growth of urbanization, um, highly recommend David Kilcullen's 2014 book, Out of the Mountains, where he kind of sketches out what he sees as the conflict environment of the 21st century with a big emphasis on non-state actors like that. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for such incredible answers. I've absolutely loved learning about this topic and all the subtopics and how things are connected. It's all very complex, but it's really, really, really interesting to learn about. Um, if our listeners want to find out more about you or your research or get 
I'm sure they'll have lots of questions. We just have definitely run out of time. Um, where can they contact you or how can they contact you? Um, yep, so I'm easy to reach. Um, I'm just ben.rich at curtain.edu.au. Similarly, um, Michael. and I'll spell it out because it's a nightmare, W-I-E-T-E-S-K-A uh, at curtain.edu.au. Um, yeah, is where you can contact me if you have any other questions. Thank you both so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you'd like to share your thoughts on today's episode about political extremism or have any questions, please send us an email at thefutureof at curtain.edu.au. And if you liked what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast and share this episode with your friends and family. Thanks for listening.